but you are so gracious to us in Christ, and we know that in the end we will be holy and blameless, perfect in your sight, part of the bride of Christ, uh, radiant and glorious in the end. So pray that you be with us today as we study in Christ and culture. We know that this is a massive topic. Uh, we only have a handful of weeks to walk through it. Every week, the topic that is addressed only begins to address it. Lord, it's, it's a massive undertaking. So help us to use our time wisely. Be with us. Be with me as I lead and all of us as we think together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're continuing to move through uh, the uh, concept of Christ and culture. And uh, grateful for Wes picking up for me last week. Um, but we're going to just move ahead um, as I alluded in my prayer, I, it, it's just important for us to realize our limitations. I mean, there's only so much time we have, uh, only so many weeks. Uh, this is a massive topic. How Christians relate to a hostile, non-Christian world, which has other religions, other philosophies, contrary to Scripture, um, has in different countries different levels of power, political power and control. Christians in some places have literally no political power and control, just totally under the domination of Christ-hating governments. Uh, it's not true here, but uh, we're in a decaying orbit. We sense that. So what are we to do about it? People have different answers to that, etc. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to address the issue of science and Darwinism, uh, the impact that, that Darwinism has had on the mindset of our secular culture, something that I have under, underestimated. It goes beyond science to an entire worldview that's been percolating through the institutions of our country, whether colleges, universities, courts, legislative bodies, etc. It's there more than we can possibly imagine. It's part of the air we breathe, this idea of things evolving, natural evolution and materialism, things like that. And so uh, this is a bigger deal than we think. And being able to refute it, first for ourselves and for our children, that we would be rock solid on the importance of creation um, and be able to refute these things for ourselves so that we are not ourselves led into doubt and troubled, that we're able to pass on to our children uh, a solid conviction of these things before they get to college and it's assaulted um, and they think that somehow science is their enemy. Um, so we're going to try to walk through those things today. Basic idea of uh, the handout today, naturalistic materialism is fundamental to the secular worldview that dominates our culture. I'll define, define these terms in a moment, but it is, it is fundamental to the secularism that's around us, all right? Darwinism is fundamental to natural materialism. For Christians to take back the place at the table in our culture, uh, we have to show that naturalistic materialism and Darwinism along with it is seriously flawed it's flawed, and also it's every bit as much a religion as Christianity is. It has faith assertions that absolutely should be challenged. Um, now, you say, to what end do we challenge? So we can win, all right? So maybe we will. Uh, you know, you can sometimes win in some school districts and not in others, and so it's just not that simple. It's not like we can win in one place for the whole nation. But still, just that's what we're called to, is to refute arguments, to destroy arguments, to destroy ideas um, that are hostile to Christianity. So that's the idea. Positively, speaking more positively, science is more of an ally, more and more an ally to destroy atheism. 
uh, the idea that science has proven that there is no God is ludicrous and should be challenged. Um, uh, it is a lie. Um, it is important for Christians to know that and boldly stand their ground for a place at the table in the center of culture. We have a winning world view. Of course we do. We have a winning worldview. We have a biblical worldview, and it is the right one. And it is far better, far healthier, and produces far better fruit than naturalistic materialism does. Key text for me today, Nancy Percy's Total Truth, as I said last time. I can't, I can't overstate how important battling evolution is in this book. It's almost every chapter. It's a long book which I've not read a word of, but I've listened to them. I do audiobooks, so I'm there riding my bike and getting angry as I ride. It's not, I don't ride well when I get frustrated. The only worse ever was Rob Bell reading his heretical book, his own book. I'm hearing his own heretical voice in my ear as I'm riding my bike. When I almost went off the road at one point. I was like, oh my goodness. Um, so that, Total Truth, and then this book... Um, Caroline gave me this. This is uh, Eric Metaxas's Is Atheism Dead? It's got a picture of a snake eating itself. So that's a symbol of basically science curling around to where science doesn't exist anymore. That's the Big Bang. Because uh, science can say nothing before the Big Bang. And science doesn't like that. Science doesn't like to be left out. So, but it's interesting because science leads right to that. So this uh, is a fascinating book. Um, Along with that, a book I've only dabbled with and touched on lightly is um, a, a huge book edited by a bunch of people, Theistic Evolution and Seeking to Refute It. This is a book I would like to work on, but you see the problem. Do you see it? Do you, do you see the problem? All right, um, so I'm going to have to pick and choose. Table of Contents, guys. You always go to the Table of Contents and start choosing what you're going to read. So the problem is I'm having a hard time harmonizing these two, so I, I don't... You know, I don't know what to think about some of the arguments even that Eric Metaxas made in terms of does it lead us to or a theistic evolutionary view, which I do not hold. So I still have work to do on this. This is a big topic. And then, of course, there's this book, which is, you know, I would just commend. You know, it's a big book too, but I would just commend, you know, continuing to work your way through that. All right, so let's do some definitions. Um, naturalism. Uh, the idea that science and philosophy <clears throat> share the same goals and that any mention of the supernatural has no place in either philosophy or science. So we're dealing with a closed system and nothing beyond that closed natural system can ever be allowed a place at the table. There is nothing more than the natural system we see. And science is part of that, philosophy is part of that, and so whatever you can learn from science, that we can talk about. But anything above or beyond science has no place at the table. All right? Now, we would say, says who? You know, we have to step back into that, you know, because you're making assertions about the supernatural, namely that supernatural things don't exist. And you can only, there's no, science cannot prove that. That's itself a religious statement. So... Also, you need to realize Hebrews 11, 11 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. 
Now, what is the author of Hebrews saying that? The stuff we physically interact with, the five senses, was made from something that we can't physically interact with with our five senses. What do we call that? Supernatural. By faith, we know that. By faith, we know that a supernatural God who cannot be discerned by five senses made everything that can be discerned by five senses. Only by faith will you know that. That's a religion. We believe in that. For them to deny that, say that's false, is also a religion. You, you guys get that? For them to say that is false, the only thing we're allowing at the table is five cents truth, is itself a religion. All right? uh, so materialism is, therefore, the idea that all that exists in reality is matter and energy. They would just say matter, but because of Einstein's theory of relativity... Uh, he equated energy and matter in the famous equation, the most probably famous scientific equation of all time, E equals MC squared. Oh, I saw a cartoon where he's got a guy who looks like, uh, you know, like Einstein, and he's got uh, E equals MA squared crossed out and E equals MB squared crossed out, and he's just thinking, you know, what's next? I don't think that's how it happened, but um, at any rate, C being the speed of light... Um, M being matter, E being it. So energy and matter are related. Energy is a form of matter, matter is a form of energy. Those two are connected. Nancy Percy in her book says there's one more thing beyond energy and matter, and that is information. Information. It's not just energy and matter. It's just random energy, whatever. It's like there is intelligence here. There is a recipe for everything. There's a recipe for flight, for sight. There's a recipe for the human brain. There is an order to this. Where did that information come from? And so that's the fundamental concept of what's known as intelligent design. There is design here. As you look around, you see it. And so that would be a third aspect. But materialism says we've got energy and matter, and that's all there is. You know, the cosmos is all there ever is, has been, or will be. That's a religious statement. That's, that's what that is. Darwinism, then, uh, all life, all of life has evolved by a process of random mutations and natural selection. So genetic mutations uh, that produce advantages to species that enable it to survive, natural selection. So it's a random thing plus a law thing. The random thing is stuff no one can control, no one even knows. Time plus chance, right? But then you've got a law of natural selection, which makes sense that you know, fitter things tend to do well, and the population swells, other you know, things with, without those advantages, the population kind of dies down. That's, that's it. Interestingly, um, the move, uh, you know, Darwinism only has to do with biology, only has to do with life. So it really would have nothing to say about the origin of life. And yet the word evolution is extended to that. So you go from Big Bang to non-living chemicals on planet Earth, and then the biggest step of all to the first living cell. We'll talk about that later, God willing first living cell, and then from the first living cell all the way up to man, the whole thing is called evolution. Darwin was focused on biology, friends. But, but from Big Bang all the way through is called evolution. That's a change in terms. But I don't know if you notice, people change terms all the time. They redefine things, like basic words like woman, all right, just being redefined. So right in front of us. So don't be surprised if they're expanding the definition of evolution to be the whole process whereby everything that we see around us has come. Okay, um, Percy in, his, in her book, sorry, uh, Christians should reject the secularization of our common culture by presenting 
a Christian worldview as superior to the secular worldview. Christians should reject secularization and present Christian worldview as superior to secular worldview. Now, in what arena, in what forum, how much time and energy should you spend on that? Those are some important questions. I would continue to say as pastor of this church, your primary tasks are the two journeys. If you don't know what they are, the two journeys are the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of gospel advance through evangelism and missions. Do that. Grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. Become more like Christ every day and lead lost people to Christ. Let's do that. Now, if you're saying, what do we do about the school board? What do we do about transgenderism being taught to our kids and all that? Different Christians will have different callings. We can at least be aware and be praying, right? But some others are going to be specially skilled to start fighting those battles. But just that we would be all on board with the fighting of that battle and that these ideas would fuel that so that spokesmen and women for us Christians can stand up in the public arena and make these arguments and have a whole body of Christians behind them agreeing that we need to fight that battle. That may be what most of us are going to end up doing. Does that make sense? You've got you some champions in the arena and that's not going to be us, but we're going to be grateful that they're there. So anyway, um, going back to Nancy Percy's book, uh, her over and over and over and over, it's this two-tiered thing. She has upper story, lower story. That's how she pictures it, like a two-story house. <clears throat> and uh, upper story is a two-tiered view of truth. Upper story is private sphere, so values such as personal preferences uh, religious values, it's non-rational, it's non-cognitive, it's subjective relative to particular groups. This is where you get, you know, postmodernism, truth for me, truth for you. That, that thrives in that upper story area. <clears throat> line, big line, division, and then below it, the lower story is public sphere. That's facts. So you get values up above, facts down below. That's scientific knowledge, rational, verifiable, facts that are binding on everyone. They're objecti- objective, they can be tested tested and proven, Uh, they're universally valid. All right, secular world swims in that lower section. And that's the only thing we're allowing at the table. The rest, you do that in your own private time. You do that at home, but don't bring that in here. Here, this is the world we live in. This is how we do laws. This is how we do education. This is how we do sociology. Everything is in that lower sphere. That's secularization. And Nancy Percy argued we should argue against it, fight against that. Um, so, and that we've, we've been walking with that over the last few weeks. Um, so uh, these books I've commended to you already. Um, <clears throat> Eric Metaxas' book, Is Atheism Dead?, argues that science is making <clears throat> excuse me, a greater and greater case for the existence of a wise, powerful, personal creator. Science is more and more of an ally. Again, some of the aspects of it, um, I wouldn't say problematic. I just have more work to do on them. I just want to keep thinking about them. I do believe it is quite possible, even biblically possible, that God created an apparently old universe with it not actually being old. Uh, And he did not do that to be deceptive. He just did it for his own purposes. And when I get to um, the feeding of the 5,000, wink, wink, you guys are in my class, and I talk about barley loaves and broiled fishes appearing fully formed so that people could eat them, implying a whole fish development that never happened, all right? It didn't grow from little fish to big fish and then get caught and broiled. 
It's just ready to eat, man. It's like, was it the military? Meals ready to eat. It came out of thin air, ready to eat. And the barley, where'd that come from? Was it a seed? Did it grow? Parenthetically, I've been worried about the, the, uh, the wafers that we serve at Lord's Supper. Was it ever wheat? I don't know. I just don't know. It worries me. I mean, what is that stuff? I'd like you nutritionists to say, like, how long could we live on just the Lord's Supper stuff? If we just had those little things, I don't know. That's another question. But those, the, the barley was never a seed. It was never a stalk. It was never a head. It was never harvested. It just is barley. And there's many examples of this, like Adam and Eve themselves. They didn't grow up from little boy and girl. They come in ready to go. And the idea that God is thereby being deceptive, he never said anything about deception or lying. It's just he had his own purposes. I do say it's absolutely not scientifically uh, falsifiable. Can't be proven or disproven. God could have created the universe a second ago with me mid-sentence. And nobody could know it one way or the other. But that's not how the Bible's written. There's an unfolding history and all that. So I have a lot of thinking still to do about Big Bang and all these other things. But I will say this. There is very clear evidence of a meticulous preparation of the universe for life on earth. What we call a finely tuned universe and a finely tuned planet. My work is not science primarily. My work is the Bible. But I love science. I am interested in it. I've shared some of this stuff uh, uh, from Eric Metaxas's book with people close to me, I won't say who, um, and others, and people get glassy looks on their faces, and they're not really that interested. Well, I'm glad you're excited about what you're reading, all right, because I'm a science person. Others aren't, all right? I understand that. But I do know this. If God has created this precise, physically precise a cosmos... And this precise planet, the same God wrote the Bible. That is interesting to me. And therefore, does it not bear the same meticulous study that physics does? I would say even more. It's not been thrown together. And the book I'm memorizing now, Ezekiel, the way it is teaching me things that I never knew about other books of the Bible, it's pretty amazing. So what it does for me is it makes me realize the the brilliant intellect, the mind behind the Bible... So that when I get up and teach, I am just so confident the Bible's God's word, and I love it, and I, I would just the rest of my life I'll be studying it, but the whole thing's baby talk compared to what we're going to learn when we die and go to heaven. So I'm pretty excited about all that. Now, here's the thing. I've given you a ridiculously long outline, and none of what I just said was on it. <laughs> I do this every week. Um, the outline you have is actually kludgy. It was put together from handouts I've done before. I would like to have smoothed it out more than I did. Sorry, I just didn't have time this week. I was speaking at, at Southeastern. I did this. So what you got is what you got. I am not going to go over every word in this handout. I'm going to give you headings. I would commend reading the whole thing if you want to learn more. But let's walk through it. All right. Um, so basic worldview. It's important. A Christian worldview involves three fundamental dimensions. The original good creation, the perversion of that creation through sin, and the restoration of that creation in Christ. Those are the three parts. Like, if you take nothing away from this Christ and culture course, take that. Worldview. Where did everything come from? How did everything get so messed up? Where are we going? Do you realize how powerful those questions are for evangelism? Ask people what they think. Talk to them. Say, where do you think everything came How do you think everything 
came to be. What is your sense of how much evolution would come into the answer of a lost person that you're going to talk to? Do you think it would pop up? That's what I'm saying. That's what we're doing today. This is not beside the point. How important is creation in the gospel in the Bible? Well, if you look at the God-man-Christ response um, outline that we give you, I start with God the creator. That's where I start. And you can start that way with everyone. You can start that way with a, with a lapsed former Baptist from the Bible Belt or with a visiting scholar from China. Start in the same place with both of them, God the creator. Everything you see around you, God made it. And because God made everything, he rules over it. It's his stuff. By ruling over all things, in ruling over all things, he has given us laws. The clearest examples are the Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments. Let me tell you again what they are. God created man to have a relationship with him, but we have fallen into sin. We've rebelled because God is the creator, king, lawgiver. He is also judge. And we stand under his judgment for having broken his laws. Do you see how the gospel flows? Where did it all start in the presentation of creation? It starts with creation. So how important is creation to, uh, to evangelism? Very important. Very important. It, it's important for apologetics, but it's also important for the overall presentation. We are telling people they're living in God's universe. They need to obey him because he's their king. And that king is angry at their rebellion and is giving them amnesty if they'll just take it. But it's not okay if they don't. You see how the whole thing fits together. So these are the three uh, aspects. Creation, fall, redemption. We walk through that. That Christian worldview is superior to all the others. Naturalistic evolution is the bleakest possible way of looking at life. It really is. Every thought you have, every feeling you have is a chemical illusion of, with no worth or value at all. Do you not see how that comes from naturalistic evolution? Nothing matters at all, including evolution itself. That's why Metaxas has the snake devouring itself. Evolution devours itself. Evolution saws off the branch it's sitting on. Evolution allows me to say to Darwin, you are meaningless and so are all your ideas. It's like, but that's weird. So the only idea we allow is evolution. That is valid, but everything else is not valid. Nah, that doesn't make sense, does it? So the, any human thought, any logic, any feeling, any intention, any desire, any ambition, any memory, any, all of it's meaningless. It's all chemical illusion. I, I find that bleak. I find that about as hopeless as it can be. And we have a better story to tell, don't we? Of a personal God who wants a personal relationship with you, made you personal. You have violated his laws, but he's willing to forgive through Christ, and he wants an eternal relationship with you. And he's a wonderful being to get to know. That's a better story, isn't it? Not just better, but it's true. All right. So that's, that's what we're, we're looking at. So Darwinism... Nancy Percy says, has affected our culture more than we can possibly imagine. Now, part of it is the idea of kids going off to college. I talked to Kevin Schaub while I was working on this. I said, I want to talk to the youth about these things. I want to get them ready to go to college. I want them to get them ready, ready as, as uh, I think it was in Metaxas' book. Uh, no, maybe Percy's, because they're both covering a lot of the same ground. Uh, to be able to raise your hand and say whatever version of baloney. Just say it. No, that's not true. 
oh, excuse me, who are you? Well, I mean, I'm so-so, but I'm crying baloney on what you just said. <laughs> and I'm not saying that's the best way to do it. That's a different question. That it's baloney, that's what we're doing today. How to say baloney? I will do that in evangelism class or something like that. But, you know, giving kids confidence to stand up at Chapel Hill, at Duke, at other places, at MIT, different places, and say, just, that's just not true. It's not true. All right, so we're going to walk through that. Um, it's, you know, we need, we need them to be able to refute the concept that science has proven that there is no God. And tax is saying exactly the opposite. Science more and more is proving there is one. More and more scientists are embracing that. Okay? Today, biology, tomorrow, the world. The central problem of Darwinism is the assertion that matter is all there is. Everything in human experience comes down to matter. Intelligent people running in that have taken that as far as it'll go. How far will it go? Everywhere. Everywhere. It's like the instant universal solvent. It destroys every container it's put in. It really does. Including the one it's in. Which is that? I don't know. Your brain, it destroys that too. It destroys everything. It's a destructive concept. Uh, evolution. But it, it, it has spread. It's, it's, you know, Percy says, a naturalistic definition of science has the effect of indoctrinating students into a naturalistic worldview that affects everything. It is central to the Christian cultural issue. Uh, Darwinism functions as a scientific support for an overarching naturalistic worldview. Universal Darwinism. We're going there. What does that mean? Francis Schaeffer's diagnosis of the real reason why Christians have failed uh, to enter the public square is they see things in bits and pieces. We don't see a harmonized universal whole. We're not seeing what she calls her book total truth. Total truth. God harmonizes every bit and piece of truth. All of it. When Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He means all truth claims, anything that actually is true, any bit piece of truth leads to him ultimately. He, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of them go to Jesus and Jesus goes to God. He is our mediator to God. And so, man, is that exciting. Isn't that exciting? I think that's beautiful. That's who we have. But we tend to see bits and pieces. We tend to see specific issues, abortion, critical race theory, you know, race relations, other things. Those are important bits. But are we seeing a, un a unifying, overarching worldview that can address those things? We tend to not. We tend to be specialized, specialists, zeroing in on those things and celebrating little victories when the big picture is looking pretty bleak with culture. And the reason is, according to Francis Schaeffer, we don't, we don't have a harmonizing, winning worldview like we should. And we have no good reason not to. The Bible gives us a worldview. As we said, creation, fall, redemption is, that's it. The Bible gives that to us. Uh, Schaefer said this, all these forms of cultural disillusion have come about due to a shift in worldview, to a worldview based on the idea that the final reality is impersonal matter or energy shaped into its current, current form by impersonal chance. Yuck. But that's it. That's naturalism. Do you see? I'll read it again. A worldview based on the idea that the final reality is impersonal matter or energy shaped into its current form by impersonal chance. It's everywhere. All right? All comes down then to your view of origins. If you start with impersonal forces operating by chance, naturalistic evolution, eventually you end up with naturalism in moral, social, political philosophy. More and more Darwinists are applying their overarching philosophy to social issues, cultural issues, evolutionary psychology, asserts that all aspects of human belief and behavior come from evolution. 
It's the survival of the fittest dynamic. Whatever helped our human race get to this point. Funny thing about it, though, is it explains everything, but it doesn't. Anything that is should be because it is, right? It's helped us survive itself. Even great crimes like rape or genocide, whatever, they've made it to this level in evolution, so they have some role to play in survival of the fittest. So both a, a mother's desire to nurture and care for her infant as soon as the child is born and infanticide can be explained by evolution. It's bizarre. And then it's inconsistent. But that's what they have to do. Do you not see? They have no choice but to try to make that work. They can't say that anything's good or bad, just that it is. We Christians can say things are good or bad based on what God says and God's nature. But it's destructive. So Robert Wright said, what's in our genes' best interest is what seems right, morally right. Yo, wow. The selfish gene, whatever the gene needs to make it to the next level of evolution, it will do, and that is right. That's the definition of what's right. Morality is defined only as what serves evolution, helps the species survive. Even more, nothing can be uh, deemed good or evil, as I've said. If a behavior trait exists, as I've said, it may have some, but must have some value. The basics of ethics does not lie in God's will. Ethics is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate. Have you ever been to an aquarium or a zoo where you're getting scolded uh, because we are so bad on the ecology and we are pushing like sea turtles toward extinction and we ought not to do that? Don't you want to raise your hand and say, why shouldn't we do it? It's just what we do. I mean, you're not angry at great white sharks for eating seals. We just do that. We're very good at destroying things. It's part of what makes our nature as animals. We're very good. Have you ever tried that? See what they say. They have a sense of moral indignation that is inappropriate for their worldview. You shouldn't be upset. We are what we are. Now, as a Christian, I don't think that way at all. I don't think we were put into the world to destroy the ecology. It came because of our sin. But I say right and wrong based on my Christian worldview. I don't know why that person's saying right or wrong. We ought not to push species toward extinction. Why not? Let's let it roll. Let's see how many we can get out done in our next 20 years. Let's, let's let it happen. What do you think they would say at the aquarium or the zoo if you start talking like that? <laughs> they want to say it's wrong, but they can't. Oh, they'll do it. They'll do it anyway because they're just inconsistent. We Christians, we can and should be consistent with our worldview. We're not. And the reason is sin is irrational. It's insane. There is no good reason for sin. The very thing we hate, we do. That's what sin is. It's just essentially inexplicable. But we're not being consistent with our worldview. With them, for them to be consistent with their worldview, it leads them to absurdities all over the place. And they really can't live it out. Humans simply function better if they're deceived by their genes into thinking that there is disinterested, objective morality binding upon them, which all should obey. Do you you realize what that guy's saying? Your genes are deceiving you into ethics. Your genes are deceiving you into being nice to your neighbor. The whole thing's an illusion. But it helps our race survive. So be nice to your neighbor. Help the weak. Help the poor, whatever. Just know you're being deceived by your genes. I mean, do you want to live that worldview? I think we have a better worldview, don't you? We ought to get right into the marketplace of ideas and say, that is garbage. 
Let me tell you why. The reason why is there is a God who says right or wrong. There's a God who tells us what's good and what's evil. So I think we can, we can step in there and do that. All right. By, by the way, that extends to religion as well. What I'm about to do, preaching an expositional sermon from Mark 6 about the sending out of the 12 apostles on their first missionary journey. What would a naturalistic evolutionist say about that 40 minutes I'm going to spend on that? Waste time. Whole thing. Religion's an illusion, right? Religious truth is an illusion. The whole thing is biochemical illusion. Devastating outcome, according to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who wrote Gulag Archipelago, said, Over a half century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that have befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution... In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected thousands of personal testimonies. I have already contributed eight volumes of my own uh, toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not have put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God, that's why all this has happened. Uh, there is a strong link between Darwinism and communism. Strong link. There's no doubt about it. Marx and Lenin overtly said it. Overtly. So it, it just the next stage in terms of, in their view, economics and politics and all that, it's evolutionary. But look what it's done. Bad fruit from that worldview. All right? <laughs> Bible's explanation of what's going on. Someone read that for us if you in Romans 1, 18 through 25. Uh, it's impossible for me to overstate how important those words are, how true they are, how much they explain what we're seeing around us. Um, so Wednesday evenings we're walking through the book of Romans. So we've already been through that chapter, but we allude to that. That explains much. And God willing, we'll go into more of this next week. Now let's, let me um, move over now to the time we have left to just say why evolution is bad science. See, I've already hinted on why it's a bad worldview why it's a bad worldview. Let's talk about why it's a bad, bad science. Why it's bad science. First of all, what do we mean by evolution? There is microevolution, genetic development, which anybody who works you know, with breeding, uh, breeding of dogs, breeding of horses, um, you know, the development of navel oranges with no seeds. You know, it seems like an evolutionary dead end, but I'm glad for it. You know, <laughs> not to deal with the seeds. Um, but uh, at any rate, that, that's microevolution. Um, nobody denies that. The fact that we all look so different from one another, but we believe that we're all descended from one man, as Acts 17:26 says, from one man made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Um, that's a very good example of microevolution. Of you know, and it happened twice because we're also all descended from Noah as well. And so you know, we all came from one. You know, and so we would think the genetic code that makes up the physical differences we have in hair color, eye color, facial structure, heights, different things, is all in, was all genetically there in our original parents, our original pair, Adam and Eve. Um, so, uh, that, so we're not denying microevolution, uh, but we are denying macroevolution. What is it? Um, it is important to note that biological evolution refers to populations, not to individuals, and that the changes must be passed on, inherited, right, to the next generation. So evolution is a process that results in heritable, 
patterns, inherited changes in a population spread over many generations. So that's just a complex way of saying survival of the fittest. What survives, not individuals, individuals can die here and there, all over the place they die, but this group, this genetic, genetically identifiable group moves on to the next generation better. That's what it is. That's, you know. Beyond that is the idea of, of going from what we would call one species to a different one, which is fundamentally, like, a lot of it has to do with the ability to reproduce. You know, the, the fact that you can't mate, you know, a, a cat and a porpoise. They're just different. They, they cannot produce an offspring. What can mate and produce an offspring are in the same species. They would say all of that came from one origin, and there's just no... It's, that science. Um, evolution is the view that non-living substance gave rise to the first living material, which subsequently reproduced and diversified to produce all extinct and, ex and extant microorganisms or organisms. All. Evolution is a deduction from this assumption. I right, let me read the whole thing. The framework behind the evolutionist interpretation is naturalism. It is assumed that things made themselves. See that? Things made themselves. Interesting. Uh, that no divine intervention has happened, and God has not revealed to us knowledge about the past. Evolution is a deduction from this assumption that's essential to the idea that things made themselves, etc. Uh, it includes these unproven ideas. Nothing gave rise to something in the Big, big Bang. Non-living matter gave rise to life. Single-celled organisms give rise to many-celled organisms. Invertebrates gave rise to vertebrates. Ape-like creatures gave rise to man. Non-intelligent amoral matter gave rise to intelligence and morality. Man's yearnings gave rise to religion, etc. That's, that's evolution. That's what we're talking about. Now, that is a religion. Just, you just need to stick a flag in it, and they need to be honest. It is, it's, it's based on unprovable, non-scientific assumptions. All right? Now, here's a key statement. Creation and evolution, those two options, together, exhaust the logical possibilities for the existence of the universe. You're at a restaurant, and, there, and you have two offerings on the menu. And that's it. There isn't a third. Either all of this was made by an intelligent designer, creator, or it evolved from nature by itself, with no intelligence behind it. Those are your two options. Do you not see then why evolution is so attractive and tenaciously held by people who don't believe in God and don't want to believe in God? But it is religion. These are the two options. So if our basic worldview is creation, fall, redemption, Creation, they wouldn't say creation, but where did things come from? That's their answer. So again, this is not some extra topic. We, we don't talk about evolution, let's talk about Jesus. It doesn't really work because we are basing our whole gospel on creation. Everything starts with God the Creator because we want to bring people back to God the Creator and King and Lawgiver. So uh, it's, this is not some side topic. It's foundation. All right? Fundamentally then, uh, go to the next quote, uh, Richard Lewontin, if that's how you pronounce his name. We take the side of science, listen to this, this is, a, this is a, an evolutionist. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. Whoa, patent absurdity, yes, we'll get to that. Patent absurdity, in spite of its failure, to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories. 
You guys ever read that? Justin Rudyard Kipling and all that, how the camel got its hump. That's basically what science is doing. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. You see that? They start with their worldview and do science out of it. That's, again, that's a religion, friends. You're starting with your worldview and we're moving out from there. It's not the other way around. Science compelled me to not believe in God. Quite the opposite. We're committed to it. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, uh, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. Those are the rules of the game. Every explanation has to be natural and material and nothing else. That's what they're saying. That, those are the rules of the game. We're supposed to challenge those rules. Say, why? Why do we have to uh, yield to your rules? They're religious. Why do we have to follow your rules? They keep reading. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, moreover, that materialism is an absolute for we cannot allow divine foot in the door. That's it. There it is. Thank you for telling the truth. They don't want God. They hate Him. They don't want to be accountable to Him. They don't want to follow His laws. They don't want to give an account for their life. They don't, they don't want They hate God. And this is why they do what they do. Now, let's talk about why I believe that evolution is bad science. There's a lot of reasons. But I want to give you these three. And I'd like you to memorize these three and investigate them and get good at them. You don't have to be a scientist to be able to talk about them. Three significant problems for Darwinism. Right? So, number one, the origin of life. Where did the first living cell come from? I won't make you all say it, but say it in your hands. Where did the first living cell come from? Just memorize it. There is not a scientist on planet Earth that can give you a, a, a good naturalistic, materialistic explanation for that. Not one. Don't think somewhere in the University of Chicago or at MIT or anywhere that's getting millions of dollars of research money to try to give a cogent answer to that, that they're doing anything with it. It cannot happen. It, and why? Because of the complexity of a living cell. How you go from non-living chemicals to a living cell that... By the way, this has blown my mind, is trying to understand what life is. I don't, I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm alive. All right. I'm not doing Descartes. I think, therefore I am. All right, good. Good to go. No, I, no I'm alive. I just know I'm alive. But the Bible, the Bible, God again and again calls himself the living God. Can you give me a definition of life that includes both a paramecium and God? I haven't been able to do it. But I, I do know that life is the centerpiece of what we're about here. This is eternal life that they may know God, the only true God. Paramecium can't know God, but it's alive. It's not an easy question. I thought about it, but life is incredibly complex. All right, first, where did the first living cell come from? We'll talk about that. Why don't the fossil records show evolution? A continual development of species. They don't. Every Species that appears in the fossil record appears, appears fully formed with no ramping up, no dimmer switch. You can't put, put them side by side by side by side like, like archaeologists can do for the de- development of a culture. They can do that. They can line them and connect the dots. 
They can't do that um, with, with the fossils. The fossils say no. And D Darwin knew it. Stephen Jay Gould knew it. All right? So the fossils say no. And then third, irreducible complexity. I would say, what good is 50% of a wing? All right? You're halfway to an evolved wing. Doesn't do you any good yet, but it will. How are you going to get there? So, yeah, go ahead, please. Number two that she stated in the note proofs of transitional like fossils, it's actually one of the key things being taught in the biology classroom today um, is that kids are taught to memorize that there's homologous structures and analogous structures that do prove that evolution is true, but there's it's not good science. They pretty much say that snakes used to have legs, that there's certain parts of the whale, that their bone structure is similar and so it's one of the key things that the kids are taught. Yeah. What you want to do historically, scientifically, Stephen Jay Gould is deceased, okay? But he was a Harvard paleontologist, what that means is a, a student of fossils, a student of old stuff. That's what paleontologist means. And he's at Harvard, not a Christian. Uh, he punted, basically, on the fossil record. And he came up with a new theory called punctuated equilibrium, which is in this handout, saying, we used to think of evolution as the tortoise and the hare. It was the tortoise. It was just slow and steady, constantly going on. Now I think evolution is the hare. It runs from tree to tree and rests and kind of, you know, rise and kind of whatever. And then runs the next week. And we just never get any fossil record of it. Well, I'm just saying for us as Christians and apologists, it's good to know the fossils say no. Just know that. The fossils say no. There are extinct Creatures, weird-looking creatures in the fossils, that's true, but don't be intimidated. Don't say it proves evolution because those are now extinct. It doesn't prove anything. It proves that species become extinct, like the trilobite, those things that look like horseshoe crabs. Tons of fossils of those things. What I'm saying is there isn't 90% of a trilobite, 80%, 70%, and you can put the fossils side by side. No, you just get lots of fossils of trilobites. Let me tell you something. Trilobites are incredibly complex creatures. Right? You can't make one in your garage. All right? You can't, like, get a bunch of chemicals and make a trilobite. You just can't. Frankly, no one on earth can take non-living chemicals and make a living cell. No one can do it. They're not even close. So the fossils say no. And the third is, what good is 50% of a wing? What do I mean by that? Let's say, all right, this is the way it works. I'm giving you the simple version, then we'll go as with the time we have left. Hey, Wes, can we move worship back an hour? He's tough that way, you know? Well, there'd be a bunch of people walking in that didn't come to this class. They're like, where is everybody? That would be kind of hot. Especially if Wes and I weren't there. No, that would not be cool. But at any rate, all right. Think of it this way. On planet Earth, there are some species that can fly. Most can't, but some can. Most common are? Birds. All right. Some questions are hard. Some are easy. Right. Birds. All right. So an evolutionist has to say what about the capacity to fly? that there was a time that no species on earth could fly, and then there was a time, now clearly, that some can. How did the ability to fly, the capacity for flight, come about? Evolution. How? How? Um, genetic mutations, random mutations, that prove beneficial. That right there is a problem, because mutations generally are destructive, not constructive. But let's just say that there are such a thing as things we never see, which is mutations that are constructive. All right, how many constructive mutations do you need to get from non-flight to flight? Well, think about the complexity of a feather. Think about its lightness, its tubular nature, its 
little, the, you know, I, I'm not a biologist. I mean, it's a, feather's complex. How, how important is feather to a bird flying? Pretty important. But is that the whole story? No, there's other things. There's ligaments and tendons and bones and all that. It's like, would you say flight is complex? Oh, yes. All right? All right, so you're telling me that a bunch of random mutations built themselves up not knowing what they were doing. There's no blueprint because nature doesn't have one. Nature doesn't have one. Nature doesn't know anything. Nature isn't knowing we're going for flight. Like a, like a builder working from blueprint, knowing they're going to, and they can even give you computer-generated pictures of what the room will look like or the building will look like that looks like a photograph. It's unbelievable what some of these virtual things can do these days. We saw it with this room. We saw what this room would look like before it ever was. It's pretty awesome. Does nature have something like that? Knowing where we're heading? Knowing where we're heading? Nature doesn't know anything. So why would it? Why would it build up the flight if it doesn't help the species every single step along the way? It's got to help the species survive. So I want you to just ludicrously picture some species halfway in, 500,000 years in, and it's dragging these weird vestigial things around that it doesn't know what they are. It's just like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. My great, 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 grandchildren will be able to fly. What fly? What does that mean? I don't know. But we're heading there. It's absurd. Do you not see how absurd it is? To follow their rules, it has to be beneficial for survival every single step of the way. There's your Rudyard Kipling just so story. It's bad science. Bad science at lots of levels. Just start with beneficial mutations. Not a lot of evidence for those. Beneficial mutations that stack up in a direction, but it doesn't know it's going to a direction. No one's got a blueprint. Nature doesn't have a blueprint. And yet we're going toward the destination of flight. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's got a destination he's going to, the bride and her beauty. He knows what he's doing. He's getting us there, right? He has an idea of where we're going. Nature has no such idea. Well, that's the third one, all right? That's Michael Behe's Irreducible Complexity. He uses the mousetrap thing, like it's got seven or eight elements to it. Like, you know, the basic mousetrap with the, the uh, wooden plank and the torsional spring and the, uh, the bar that breaks its neck or captures its tail or something. You know what I'm talking about. Have you guys ever used these things? Yeah. All right. Um, you know, and I know they've been for years building a better mousetrap. We're talking about kind of the original basic mousetrap now. And you got that bar that holds the bar down and you got the clip. All right, you got these seven, eight ingredients. Take one of them away. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Need them all, and they all need to be in the right place and doing the right thing. That's what he's saying about sight. I'm saying it about flight. Not until everything is in place does it work. Does it work? All right. So let's go back to the first one, which is the first living cell. Okay. So I, I'm just telling you, this is a winner for us guys. It's a winner because I'm just telling you, nobody has an answer for this one. All right. How could life have evolved from non-life? Now, people will stupidly say, but don't tell them they're being stupid. 
But there's, let's say, didn't they, didn't some scientists like make life in a test tube some time ago? No, they didn't. Well, let's tell you what they did. All right, Stanley, uh, Miller-Urey uh, experiment, 1952, major breakthrough, University of Chicago scientists ran electrical current through a glass flask containing four basic chemicals, water, methane, ammonia, and hydrogen. They assumed, they called that the prebiotic suit. They assumed these things were available on pre-life planet Earth. Assume, assume, assume. I'm sure it was there. You don't know anything. You have no evidence, but that's what they're doing. All right? So they put those together. And they hypothesized that a static electron lightning spark or strike or something like that supplied energy. Yeah, I mean, generally, lightning strikes are not constructive. Have you noticed that about lightning strikes? They don't tend to be constructive, tend to be more destructive. At any rate, this is a very constructive lightning strike that causes some things to be built. What they got out of that was amino acids. Done, right? Well, what Eric Metaxas says is, we are further away than we were in 1952. Because in 1952, they assumed the cell was easy and simple. It had this thing called protoplasm, which I didn't realize. I learned that word when I was in biology in middle school or whatever, you know, protoplasm. They don't use it anymore. It's kind of like ether, the ether. You guys ever heard of ether? Um, you know, the, it, it's out there in the ether. What is the ether? Well, we don't use it anymore. It's the, it's the atmosphere. All right. No, it's far more complex than that. Since that time, since 1952, 71 years, Millions, literally millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of research have gone to the next step after Miller and Urey. They're not getting anywhere. And the journey, like, like what's happening is while they're working, busily working, right, here we're in the lab trying to do some stuff, to get to the next step, it's the next step, right? The target has moved about two light years further away. It's like they're busy, it's like, oh, wow. Um, they're farther away than ever before. They're not getting there. All right. Why? Because we've learned the staggering complexities of living cell. All right. Now, I'm going to skip ahead. You guys, I don't know if this is still on the table, but, you know, it was a few years ago. I've not looked into it. But you could Google it. Origin of Life Prize. $1.35 million. It's waiting for you, friends. Waiting for you, friends. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm a recovering biology teacher. Um, there's Recover. one other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's one other hypothesis that's mostly taught. Um, that it's taught that the Miller-Urey experiment was like in, like not super great. Right. But it's also commonly taught that likely a meteorite hit with the amino acids, giving us the amino acids. That yeah, it evolved somewhere else. Yeah. That's the Pretty best good. example of kicking the can down the street. Yeah. I didn't, what, right. what that means is we don't know. Kick some other place. We're yeah. not going to worry about it. So, yeah, that's the number two common explanation. Panspermia, it's yeah. called. You know, these are smart people coming up with this stuff. No, professing to be wise, they became fools. Amino acids. Or why not just say little green men? Let's just do that. Yeah. I mean, let's just say proto-humans. Let's just have them come from another place. Let me finish, though, Origin of Life Prize, because I want you guys... If you do win it, though... I hope you don't. Oh, my goodness, don't win it. But if you do... Please tithe it, and it'll help us pay off our $1.35 million for it. Just all they're looking for is a plausible theory. That it's just thought work. You don't have to do any lab work, just thought work of how we go from non-living chemicals to the first living cell. What is the first living cell? What must that cell have or do? All right, it's listed. I'm not going to read them, but here it is. It has to have a cell wall. Incredibly complex. The cell wall is a membrane that allows good things in and not bad things. 
and allows other things to pass out, it's a very intelligent thing. Cell wall. That's just one. What else? Information for reproduction. Because it's going to die, right? So it's got to pass on what it is to the next generation. We need that. So information. What's that like? DNA? Yeah. Okay. That's got to be ready to go. Information from information to chemicals. Like you need certain chemicals. There's little, little processes going on inside the cell. It's got to be able to do those processes. So you've got to be able to go from information, like the recipe on how to feed yourself or whatever, just knowing how to do that. That's what's going on inside a single cell. It's got to be able to eat. It's got to be able to reproduce. It's got to be able to heal, grow, deal with the environment, and be stable, yet adaptable, because we've got to get evolution. We've got to get everything from that first living cell. So it's going to be adaptable. Those things. Do that. Publish it in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, accepted by the scientific journal. You'll get your money. Now, let me tell you right now, let's skip ahead. I'm just going to skip ahead to James Tour, who's quoted by Eric Contaxis. Let me read about James Tour. He is the leading nanoscientist in the world, doing stunningly complex things with nanotechnology. This guy is a supreme genius. He's one of the best scientists in the world. Don't think he's like some, you know, some whatever. Uh, he is one of the leading scientists in the world. He knows as much about creating molecules as anyone in the world. He says all the research toward recreating primordial life, the first living cell, cell, have been utter failures. He says, I know, you're talking to the world's expert right now. I know better than anyone in the world. There is not a person on earth with a plausible scenario. No one. And he puts the odds of going from non-living chemicals to the first living cell at, and this is the biggest number I've ever heard in my life, 10 to the 87 millionth power that's a, a one with 87 million zeros. It would take you and 100 of your best friends about 17 years to just write the number. All right, so one in 10 to the 87 million equals zero. That's zero chance. What was that Jim Carrey movie saying? So you say I've got a chance. What was that movie? Dumb and Dumber. Like, yeah, you have no chance. No chance. It doesn't happen. So where did the first living cell come from? First of all, understand, living cells, a single cell creature has to have all, it's like one-stop shopping. Everything has to be in the one cell. Our liver cells or our, what are the other cells are simpler than that because they don't have as many jobs. They don't have, they just have a liver job to do or a bone job to do. See what I'm saying? They are relying on other complex systems to deliver to them what they need to stay alive. Where did all that come from? Do you realize the complexity of the human body? Working together. How do you get that from evolution? It's just, friends, it's just bad science. So I've given you an overview of the three kind of main unanswerable questions. I had a discussion like this with a guy who was writing a book on evolution. He was 80% through. He, was, he has a contract. This is about seven or eight years ago. I'll never forget this. We're on a plane. He said next to me, and we got to have a conversation. And he found out I was a Southern Baptist pastor. He shut down. He started targeting his wife because they had no interest. He had tremendous hostility toward Christianity. The reason was he had been down in um, a South, South American nation and a Pentecostal church played loud music till late hours of the night. No, this is his story. And he was hostile to Christianity ever since. I'm like, that's no good reason to go to hell. Uh, I didn't say that. But anyway, um, fundamentally, he was hostile. But then he found out I went to MIT and worked for 10 years as an engineer. Then he heard me say, well, I think evolution is bad science. 
said, what? I said, well, I'll tell you why. And I went through these three things. We spent a lot of time on what good is 50% of the wing. He said, flight is very helpful to survival. I mean, it helps, helps prey get away from predators. Helps them be predators. I said, wait, 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 wait. It can't fly. Not yet. It can't fly. So why would it pass on the mutations? He got angry at me. He had no answer. He just got angry. And Greg Kugel says, as a Christian, you're in an apologetic discussion. If either of you gets angry as a Christian, you've lost. You don't want them to get angry. It's not helpful. But what does the anger show? Where there's smoke, there's fire. He doesn't have an answer. And he's writing a book on evolution. And you can't handle the simple question of what good is 50% of a wing. And you're not getting the 50%, you know. You're not getting the 1%. You're not getting off the dying. The whole thing is faulty. All right, so what do we do with all this? I think fundamentally we understand that the statement, science has disproven God, is faulty. It is itself a religious statement. Our kids should learn these stuff and go off to college and raise their hands. Excuse me, can I ask a question? Where would you say the first living cell came from? Just, just to have kids know how to ask that question gives them confidence. All right, let's close the prayer. Lord, thank you for this time we've had to study today. I pray that you would strengthen us uh, with your truth. I pray that you would be with us, Lord, as we go down to worship. Lord, you are so good. And we don't know a millionth percent of who you are. We, we know enough to be saved, but we have an, uh, an infinite journey of learning ahead of us of your glory. So I pray that you would help us as we go in now to, to sing and to praise you and to thank you for our salvation and to learn more from your word. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.